0: Welcome to the Nursing Home 411 podcast by the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. I'm your host, Eric Goldwine, and on today's show, we'll focus on the critical role of visitation in long-term care facilities. At the top, we'll hear from families about their challenges connecting with loved ones during the COVID-19 pandemic. The second part of the show features Tony Ciccatello of the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform who explains how the costs of isolation are outweighing that of the disease and discusses Kanner's Visitation Saves Lives campaign for restoring reasonable visitation to residents. These interviews have been edited for length and clarity. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. Thank you for agreeing to talk to us about your experiences with visitation uh, during the past few months. Can you start by just telling me about who you are and and what uh, nursing home uh, that, you, that your son is in?
1: Yes, I will, Eric. My name is Sandra Sanchez and my son Wilfredo is in a Eastchester nursing home and rehabilitation center in the Bronx. He's been there for five and a half years. And during all that time, I've never had a problem pre-pandemic visitations. They've been very accommodating. You know, I have crazy hours from my work, they vary. So they let me come in and out whenever I please. Now, unfortunately, March 11th, everything changed. And it's been three and a half months that I haven't been able to see my son. So they don't know, they have no idea of when we'll be able to go back in. They say that everything's good in the facility, they're COVID-free, but they're waiting on the CDC and Cuomo to decide when and if we get back in there, which is extremely hard. And it's, just, I can't even tell you how challenging it is every day to have to deal with the fact that I can't get in there to see my son. He's 37 years old, and he had a bad accident, and he's on a trach. He has a feeding tube. I do everything for my son, basically. When I'm there, I will get there every day after 3 and leave after the night shift came in, which is after 11. Every day for five and a half years. So he's used to having me around. He can't talk, but he communicates with his eyes with me. He gives me a smile. He knows when I come in, he, he looks at me, he smiles. He follows me around the room with his eyes. I change him. I do the AIDS work when I'm there. I prefer to do him hands-on. I make his bed, his room. I shave him. I give him a haircut. I do his nails. I do exercise with him, to keep him from contracting. Um, I play music. I read the Bible. I sing sometimes like a crazy person, and he gives me a smile. It's very difficult not to be there, and I know he's anxious, like he used to, look forward to the facetimes in the morning. But now he just sleeps through them. I would be greatly appreciated. My son needs me, and there's so many in there that are alone,
2: mm-hmm. that don't
1: have family members, and they did. I hear from staff that they look very sad. The ones that have more activity than my than even my son, they look so sad. They look down. They don't look forward to activities. It's, it's a bad situation. They, they need their loved ones.
0: Have you been FaceTiming our video?
1: Yeah. They FaceTime in the morning. It's supposed to be every other day. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But I see him for a minute, minute and a half, maybe two, tops on a good day when he's awake. And I want him to hear my, my voice and let him know things are okay. But I've been telling him for over a month now that I, I'll be there soon. I'll be there soon. So he just looks at me like, okay, here she goes again, telling me I'll be there soon. And I don't know when soon is. The most I've not seen my son maybe a day or two, if mm-hmm. that, because I don't feel well, but my mom is there. There's always somebody with him. If Mm -hmm. she can't make it, I don't care how I feel, I'm there with him every day. Even if I just lay down next to him, put my chair next to him, and I don't feel well, I'm there, he knows I'm there. I'll hold his hand, he knows he's not alone.
0: Uh, Would you like to see, um, as far as uh, changes in visitation policy?
1: Obviously, I want us to be able to go back in there. I understand that they are more most vulnerable, but the same way they kept us out to keep them safe and how many thousands and thousands and thousands have died cruelly by themselves. Of course, I want to keep them safe, but I don't know, an hour every other day, every day, two hours, whatever it is, Staff goes in, they're in and out. You know, once they che- they check in in the morning or the evening or the afternoon, they are allowed to go back out. They're in and out. They're doing this in constant. I go by the place all the time. It's only seven minutes from my house. I see them congregating. I see them doing this stuff. So now all these things are opening back up again. And my fear is that something will spike like the other states that twenty five of them or twenty six, whatever we're up to right now the same thing will happen here and then we'll never get in
0: thanks to sandra for coming on the podcast the next interview features the daughters of a centenarian resident at a new york city facility and they requested anonymity to protect their mother's identity here it is well thank you for coming on our podcast and sharing uh, some of your story can you tell me about how often you were visiting before the pandemic pandemic hit and what those visits were like?
3: Well, we visited mom every single day, 365 days a year. We also took um, her out to plays and we celebrated holidays by taking her out to a favorite restaurant so that she had a, a, a high quality of of socialization and communication, and she was not ever in isolation. And when we, when we visited her, we certainly took care of her, her health her treatment and care. Cognitively, she's always been um, exceptionally good, had a very good sense of humor. And uh, we would make sure that whatever treatment she was supposed to have, she got them and they were done in a, t- in a timely fashion. And we also made sure that she had her clothing laid out and all the things that would provide her with quality of life and dignity.
0: When and how did you find out that uh, visitation would be restricted or uh, or blocked because of COVID-19?
3: The administrator at that time, uh, uh, on March 12th, called and said that as of the 13th, we, there were no more visitations from the family. Uh, we were filled with uh, angst, of course, because our, we had been used to seeing our mother, and our mother was used to seeing us also. And I think that that was kind of a, a setup for failure because he must have known at, at our mother's age, that, that was going to be that was going to create a a mental as well as emotional setback.
0: Since then, uh have you seen her face to face or and how long or uh, have you seen her by video? Can you talk about the visitation experience since the mid-March?
3: Yeah, we we've had an opportunity to see her from the the vestibule the glass area. And so we've been able to wave to her and uh, speak to her by the telephone. Uh, They never really set up the telecommunications venue so that we would have had access to speak with her on any given day. So we were able to just wave to her and, you know, bring her a magazine and, uh, you know, some little things that, you know, clothes, anything else that we brought home. And uh, that was it. So that was all of maybe five minutes. These little short visits have, um, I think, given her some kind of security, knowing that we were unable to come to see her
0: as we had been. Have you noticed any uh, physic, any changes in physical appearance when you have seen her?
3: One of the things that we saw that was uh, quite blatantly clear she had lost weight, perhaps about uh, fifteen pounds, and this is essential. How the residents can maintain themselves if they lose too much weight, they become weak and they can't fight off any conditions that might come up. The other piece of it is not only malnutrition, but also dehydration. And dehydration can be mistaken, and you can have a, a, a UTI, a urinary infection, and it could be mistaken for a mental health issue. And we have to pay attention to all of these things because these are the other crisis that the residents can go through. Also uh, looking at the teeth, they not brush properly. And so you can have infections in the mouth. All of these things are an imperative. And when the families are going to visit the residents, these are the things that they're able to, to pay attention to where some of the staff people or the doctors or the dentists are not doing in the nursing home facilities. And even though our mother came into the facility not ever having a bed sore while she was there, she did get a bed sore. However, during these three months of not being able to do anything, we have no idea whether there's a recurring bed sore or if there's any other kind of infection that um, she might have. You know, she could be in pain and not able to even express that to us. And so those are our concerns too. This has changed the whole complexion of her physical health and her mental health
0: and care. Well, thank you again for sharing your story and talking to LTCCC about your visitation experience. I really appreciate your time.
3: Thank you for giving us the opportunity.
0: Our final segment features Tony Chikatel a staff attorney for the California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform, Canner, which is launching a Visitation Saves Lives campaign for restoring reasonable visitation to residents in long-term care facilities. Tony, uh, I want to start with before the pandemic. Back in February, uh, before everything was shut down, before COVID-19 was even on a lot of people's radars, what were the rules regarding visitation in
2: long-term? First of all, thank you for covering this topic and inviting me to participate. Um, But pre-COVID, the rules regarding visitation were very protective of residents' rights to see friends and family virtually at will. I mean, this is where the residents live, it's their home, so they should have the same kind of access as anybody else in their home to visitors 24-7, if that's what they want. Obviously, there's other concerns about roommates and things like that, but generally the law was very Uh, protective of the idea that residents should have as much visitation as they want from visitors of their choosing. And speaking to
0: ombudsmen, speaking to, to family of residents, there seem to be varying experiences of how the visitation stopped. Um, was this a, is this something that happened overnight? One day, uh, everybody was allowed in, and then the next day everything was closed off or did this uh, change state to state, facility to facility? Uh, and also when did when did it change?
2: It, it wasn't just suddenly the door slammed. It was more of, of about a week long, as my experience, it was about a week long in early March. I think the CMS memo permitted, Virtually permitting a ban on visitation was around March 13th. But the week before that, we had been, he- been hearing a lot of complaints from family members that facilities were doing, um, suddenly undertaking measures that would limit visitation, like requiring visitors to get their temperature taken, requiring visitors to sign some sort of waiver about infection control. Uh, one facility was requiring prospective visitors to sign or to watch a video on good infection control measures, hand washing and things like that, um, requiring PPE, uh, limiting people's hours of access. So we started hearing a lot about visitation concerns the week before CMS really created the prohibition, but um, the doors were really shut throughout the country around March 13th.
0: Right, and there's some uh, obvious justifications behind that. Can you talk about why that was implemented? Yeah, there was one
2: justification. It was to prevent COVID-19 from getting into into the nursing homes. In March there was a lot of um, panic, especially when you know the first real epicenter for COVID-19 in the United States was a nursing home in Kirkland, Washington. So it was a lot of concern about nursing homes. You know the analogy I can think of was there was this big tidal wave approaching and we didn't know how big it was, but we knew it was big and it would be destructive. So it was, you know, put up the walls to prevent the wave from hitting us. And the, be- the you know, the easiest way to, to put up a wall was to just um, isolate these communities, to stop people from going in and out of them. And visitors were the low hanging fruit. That's, that's probably the, the population that, that does the most entering and exiting nursing homes. So they, they were, um, their visits were terminated. That was uh, that was really the one reason was just to stop COVID nineteen from entering the building, which leads us to sort of evaluate was this goal satisfied? And I think, I think um, for most objective measures, we'd say no. Um, it looks like at least half or more of all nursing homes have had COVID nineteen at this point. When it's all said and done, it's probably going to be something close to 100 percent of facilities have COVID nineteen in the buildings. Um, so from a perspective of preventing the Viruses from getting in. I think it's been a huge failure. Now, has the ban limited spread? Has it limited facilities from getting COVID-19? That uh, you got to believe that that's the case. There's, uh, you know, something around 15,000 nursing homes in the United States, and you can say with almost certainty that the visitation ban stopped some people with COVID-19 from getting in the building and spreading it in those buildings. Um, the question is, is whether that value is worth it, is worth the cost of completely shutting down visitation for 1.2 million nursing home residents.
0: There are all sorts of uh, social, mental, physical benefits to having access to a uh, a loved one that knows the resident, that has an understanding, that is able to uh, maybe see things that a and a official uh, care a, a a nurse might not see uh, what what are the costs of of removing that set of eyes
2: oh gosh i don't know if there's a way to measure that cost i don't know if there's a way to accurately describe all of the value that visitors add to nursing home residents it's the, the benefits that they bring, it's just impossible. And that's, you know, I had always worked from the premise that visitation was super important for the psychological health of residents, but I didn't really have, fortunately I didn't have an occasion to think much beyond that because visitation was usually honored. Uh, but since then I've learned so much about what visitors did, how much direct care they provided. Not only are they the, sort of the eyes and the ears for a lot of residents, And the voices, critically the voices of a lot of residents who have cognitive impairments, they they provide direct care services. I've heard from so many family members who um, routinely went to the nursing home, oftentimes every day, and turned and repositioned their loved ones, um, fed them, hydrated them, made sure that they took their medications, groomed them, washed them. Uh, changed their incontinence briefs, got them to and from the toilet, took them to and from the dining room, took them to and from activities, uh, translated for them if they if they didn't speak English and no one in the facility spoke their language, a few staff people spoke their language. Um, I have one case in Sacramento where the the resident um, is hearing impaired and, and uses sign language and there's no nobody in the facility, nobody on staff will use a sign language. So her boyfriend had been coming in every single day and interpreting for her. So, and all these services were completely lost uh, and that void was not filled in any significant way on March 13th. And we know that actually staffing probably dipped down since COVID-19 because so many staff have been infected or have been scared to come to work Uh, or for various reasons just haven't shown up. So compounding this loss of direct care provision from family members, we've also lost to some extent paid staff member care. So there's a huge void of care right now that needs to be addressed, frankly. I I think what a lot of people have concluded is that the the damage from the loss of care and the the isolation uh, in nursing homes is greater than the, the harm suffered from COVID-19. And like I said, we have not been successful in keeping COVID-19 out. The, the weak point was the staff. The staff still come in and out of the facilities. And our mantra really has been if, if family members provide collectively provide as much care or maybe even more vital care to residents than the staff, why can't they follow the same protocols and visit with their loved ones and provide care when needed?
0: So uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, this was on a May 18th, laid out of guidelines for state and local officials uh, to use in determining when visitors can return and how to safeguard against outbreaks. Around that time, Kanner, uh your organization, also released a
2: plan. Can you explain what that plan is? Yeah, the, the plan is basically for... Support person visitation. And the idea here is we, during COVID-19, we are not advocating for going back to pre-March 13th where residents have these robust rights to visitors of their choosing whenever they want. Um, What we're advocating for is a sensible approach that sort of balances the concerns about COVID-19 with the concerns about isolation and neglect. And sort of where we come in, where we find the compromise could be struck is with this idea of a support person visitor. And that, and that's actually there's policy in California that, that um, encourages facilities to allow support person visitation. The problem has been facilities have been very conservative on this stuff, and when they see it as guidance, they they see it as something that they don't have to do and that they're um, they're shying away from. So we're we're advocating that the policy shift to mandatory allowance of support person visitation. This would be uh, a person. Hopefully if the resident's choosing, but if the resident can't make those kinds of decisions, then the resident's representative would decide who could visit with this person. Uh, and then we, so we limit the number of people who have access to the resident. And then we select a person who provides something more than just basic psychological support, even though that is really important. And in certain cases, I could understand why that psychological support might be enough to trigger the need for uh, like a medical need for a support person visitor. We've been hearing a lot about depression but, it, but for the, the uh, family members or the visitors who provide actual direct care services to their loved ones, they should be allowed in to provide those services to prevent the kind of neglect that we're very worried about.
0: Uh, one thing I struggle with is, when looking at these policies, is feasibility and how uh, we know that a lot of facilities out there, and this is a whole separate problem, might not have the infrastructure to execute what should be an executable plan uh, so there might be fear among at a of uh, resonance at a um, lower performing facility that they just don't trust their facility to get it right how would you respond to to the fear that just introducing more variables into the into this fragile some these sometimes fragile settings what would be your response to that?
2: Yeah, you know, and that's, that's a point that a lot of people have, a, a point similar to one that a lot of people have made to us, policymakers have made to us, which is, well, if you had a loved one there, would you be really comfortable with visitors, you know, showing up and, and uh, possibly introducing COVID-19 into the building? And of course, the answer is no. I mean, you, you want to limit risk as much as possible, but then on the flip side, the, the big concern is all the neglect and isolation. And we've already made these allowances for the staff. I mean, there's, there's no, here's what really bothers me is the idea that, and this is true, nursing homes can hire a brand new staff person off the street and CMS has waived and states have waived the minimum, st- the minimum training requirements for these direct care staff people. So you can come into a nursing home basically with no training, very little training, and, have, and not be screened. There's no requirement that you have a COVID-19 test before you start work. There's no requirement that you uh, get your temperature taken uh, before you start work or other screening mechanisms. A lot of facilities have them in place and that's good, but there's no requirement for that. So we allow people to come in brand new off the street and provide care to up to 15, 20, 25 residents every day, but we don't allow um, visitors who are who go through similar screening or maybe even more robust screening to visit their one loved one in a single room that's away from anybody else or outdoors even it just it doesn't add up now that your concerns a little bit different you're talking about facilities that just have so many problems that we would expect if, if they get the message that visitors are now allowed they wouldn't really have much of an appreciation for nuance and and vetting out the the visitors and making sure that this is a very limited, safe plan and they were just, now visitors could come and go freely. I think we would have significant concerns about that. And as part of the policy development, um, we would hope that there would be some kind of enforcement mechanism to crack down on facilities that don't abide by the the required vetting process for visitors um, and follow the policies as prescribed by the federal and state governments.
0: And yeah, so it sounds to me like you're maybe increasing the chance of exposure by X percent, but you're reducing the costs of loneliness, of isolation, of all of the other negative consequences associated with lack of visitation by a larger uh, amount.
2: Yeah, that that is exactly it. The Would a support person visitation plan, would any increase in visitation risk more exposure for the residents and the staff? Absolutely, there's no way of getting around that. Even if you required all the potential visitors to have a COVID-19 test, I mean, there's latency periods, there's false negatives and those kinds of concerns. So there's no way that this would not increase the risk. The idea is to increase it as, as little as possible to a point that we're still willing to accept for the, for the additional, significant additional benefits that visitors would provide to loved ones. And I, I just, I can't tell you how many people we've heard from uh, just in the last week or two as we developed this campaign to promote uh, social, uh, social media campaign to, to uh, change the visitation policies in the country, how many people are talking about their loved ones just losing it? They're, they're just declining so rapidly. Without, their, without the visitors. So there is a significant, tremendous cost to the loss of visitors and the isolation that's being experienced and the neglect that I don't think CMS and the state policymakers properly accounted for. When it was early March and we didn't know much about this virus, sure, let's be, let's be real conservative and as careful as possible. I don't think that we understood at that time that this could take years before it's, it's eradicated or at least um, to a manageable level in our society. And, um, I, and I have not seen a lot of interest in reconsidering the ban from the perspective of how long could this thing possibly last? And at what point does it become untenable for the residents where it's, it's actually doing significantly more damage than COVID-19 ever would? And I think we're already at that point.
0: We close all of our podcasts with a uh, guest recommendation segment. So I'm going to ask you to recommend one long-term care-related, it could be a book, an article, a movie, and another that could be anything. So let's start with a a nursing home-related material.
2: Okay, let's, because this is, um, normally the stuff I talk about is so heavy and Mm. oftentimes tragic, let's try to keep this a little upbeat where we can. For um, a nursing home-related book or media, um, it's a little dated now. It's from, I think, 2013, 14, somewhere around there. There was an HBO series called Moving On. I think it was called Moving On. Uh, it was on. called Getting On. Um, it was a comedy on HBO, an HBO comedy about nursing a nursing home in LA. And it was a small, distinct part, hospital nursing home, maybe 30, 40 beds. And it was hilarious. And the acting was phenomenally good like painfully good so the idea was this nursing home the staff were uh, well the management wasn't very good and there was a lot of incompetence so it was sort of true to life <laughs> in, in some ways um, so but it featured this incompetence and it was so realistic that it was almost painful to watch these actors were really really good Lorie Metcalf played the medical director um, you know from Lorie Metcalf from Roseanne, The Roseanne Show. She played the sister. Um, she's really great in it. And there's uh, Niecy Nash is in it. There's just really good actors, really good show. Um, that's That would be my recommendation if you have HBO. Yeah, and they, whoever um, whoever they did the work with, the consulting work with on um, the nursing home issues, it was spot on. Like they, they really knew their nursing home stuff. And the nursing home care wasn't really the focus of the show, but it was always in the background and always present so it was it was pretty cool yeah.
0: and uh, and do you have any non nursing home related recommendations
2: yeah, so uh, I am a nerd about the American war for independence and the uh, that time period in American history, so from about seventeen seventy through the Adoption of the Constitution I'm just I read a lot of books about that and I read a recent book about that called the British are coming It's by an author named Rick Atkinson and it's I think it's the beginning of a series On the war for independence and it starts with Lexington and Concord in 1775 and this first book takes you through um, the basically the Washington crossing the Delaware to attack the Hessians in New Jersey, Princeton, New Jersey in late 17, or I guess it was Christmas night 1776 or seven. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's, it's a phenomenally researched book about all the battles and the strategy of the war for independence. And I know that sounds sort of, uh, I'm not a big war guy, but just it gives you an intense appreciation for the odds and how stacked against the United States this was and how what a miracle it was that the colonies p- prevailed ultimately over Britain because Britain had so many advantages and the book goes into a lot of detail on the British side about um, what the king was doing and, and his advisors and where they made their missteps and all the areas where we got lucky and just that he writes these battlefield scenes with such amazing detail I'm, I'm wondering like how he got all this detail um, really puts you in the in, in this, into the scene, and it's it's pretty amazing stuff. So if you have any interest in the war for independence, I highly recommend um, this book, "The British Are Coming." And...
0: All right, we'll link to, to that as well. Well, thank you so much uh, for for taking the time to chat about this. Uh, again, it's a it's canner org is the website. We'll post all the information on uh, on the support uh, visitation plan. And it was actually an inspiration behind LTCC's uh, blueprint for in-person visitation. Uh, so we're uh, looking forward to uh, hearing more talk about this over the next uh, next few weeks.
2: All right, yeah, we, we expect we're gonna do this big social media campaign starting June 30th and we'll hope that it lasts for as long as it needs to last until policymakers change the visitation ban.
0: Yeah, so hopefully it won't last that long then.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe a day or two. All right. All right. Thanks. I appreciate it. Okay, Eric. Thanks a lot, man.
0: Thanks for listening to the Nursing Home 411 podcast. To learn more about the Canner campaign, visit visitationsaveslives.com. That's visitationsaveslives.com. For more episodes of the Nursing Home 411 podcast, you can visit nursinghome411.org slash podcast, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. Till next time.